session. And so now we are turning to the uh, second panel of the day focused on China's growing role in Central Asia and the South Caucasus. Um, so again, I'm Henry Hale, uh, George Washington University, co-director with uh, Marlene Laruel of Ponars Eurasia and Professor at uh, George Washington University. And just on behalf of Ponars, I want to thank again uh, Jeff and uh, CSIS for uh, organizing and making this event possible. And, uh, and so I look forward to the rest of the discussion of the day. Um, so I think we'll just dive right in. Um, so we'll just go in the order in which uh, people are listed in the program. So we'll start with Eric McGlinchey of George Mason University, then turn to Sebastian Perouz of GW, and then Anar Valiev of ADA University in uh, Baku. So uh, Eric, please take it away. Thank you, thank you, Henry. Um, I don't know if you guys have the, uh, uh, the agenda. Uh, you'll notice that the title of my presentation is different from the title of the paper, and uh, I've actually took the liberty of changing the title of my memo as well. Uh, and that's because my own thinking on this topic has evolved as I've been confronted with empirics. Empirics are pain, right? And they, 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 change, they change the way you do your analysis. Uh, and I was struck by um, a comment that Elizabeth made about uh, one of her uh, colleagues in China uh, discussing the fact that there's this Russian information campaign against Central, uh, well, against China in Central Asia, and the net result. Now, now Elizabeth didn't say this, but but I, my perception, uh, at least going into this project, that it, indeed there was some of this, and that this campaign was successful or is successful. So I began this work uh, with the assumption that, that there is Sinophobia in Central Asia. Um, and it's not that I've entirely abandoned the fact or the, the, the proposition that there is Sinophobia. There is some Sinophobia. Uh, it's just nowhere near as widespread as I thought it was. Uh, so that's, that's, I think, the punchline that I want to leave you with. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll walk you through uh, how I've arrived at this conclusion. Um, uh, but I've been struck by how receptive, actually, Central Asians are towards China. Um, let me just give you a, a, an outline of where, of where I'll be going. Uh, first, I'd like to uh, contextualize uh, the approval of, of China in Central Asia. Uh, contrast this to the approval of Russia. I think part of the reason why I began with this uh, position of, of Sinophobia is, in contrast to Central Asian approval of, of Russia, uh, actually it, it is significantly lower. So, so Russia still remains the top dog as far as how people uh, perceive these foreign powers. Uh, but also I think what's important to keep in mind, and here I'll be drawing from uh, Gallup World Poll data, uh, is that the modal response uh, that Central Asians have when asked whether or not they approve of the Chinese leadership is actually yes. Uh, that is the single greatest response. That is one of approval of the leadership. Um, this doesn't mean that Central Asians don't approve of China. It's just that uh, it's, it's a much more complicated picture than I think a lot of people have portrayed. Um, one of the, I think, things that's overlooked is that many Central Asians simply may not have enough information or may be, may be conflicted and may not feel comfortable expressing an opinion one way or the other. So actually the do not knows and the refused answers are actually quite high in this data. Um, part of the reason why I think that might be, and I'll talk about this in the second point here, is that China plays a very important role in Central Asia uh, economically, but the, that, that economic role has both been positive and, and in some aspects negative. So I'll talk about some of that positive, uh, some of the benefits that China has 
<clears throat> has brought, um, but also some of the controversy that has surrounded uh, several of the investment projects in Central Asia. Um, the, co the controversy around these economic projects, I would also posit, has also led to a rise of uh, popular anti-Chinese narratives. Um, and these are the things that initially caught my eye, and this is why I initially thought that uh, the role uh, or, or the view of China in Central Asia was, was very negative, these, these narratives. Um, there, there are several of these, I'll go through them, um, uh, and I'll conclude with this idea that perhaps these narratives resonate among some populations more than others. Um, one of the things that I found digging into the data here is that there's some variation in who perceives China and how, and it's actually the younger population that is perceiving China uh, more positively than the older, older population. Okay, so let me begin with a contextualization. There's a trick here for turning off this jumping mouse. Um, I think, I think that, I think I, okay, yeah, so that hopefully that mouse won't jump around anymore. Um, okay, so, uh, so, so my initial entry into how Central Asians uh, perceive China is, is the media, I think like, like most other people. And if you read the Central Asian media, you see a lot of stuff about these kinds of events. So you know, up here at the top left of the screen, uh, these are protesters in uh, Nur Sultan. For those of you who haven't been following uh, developments in Kazakhstan, Nur Sultan is Astana, uh, the, new, the new capital there. Uh, um, they're protesting uh, um, in sympathy with the protest in Zhanazen. Uh, uh, they're protesting against the nature of Chinese investment in Kazakhstan. Um, in particular, they're upset by the fact that a lot of the people who are being employed in the oil industry in Kazakhstan are Chinese nationals and not Kazakh nationals. So uh, th this has been going on um, uh, in, in the past week, actually right in the run-up um, to the bilateral between uh, China and Kazakhstan. Uh, on the right, you see protesters outside of the UNDP building in Bishkek in Kyrgyzstan, uh, and they're protesting against the uh, the quote-unquote, re-education camps in northwest China, uh, and they're protesting in particular about uh, the fact that within these re-education camps there are, are, are Kyrgyz who live in, in, in northwest China. Um, this is the kind of stuff that you see fairly frequently in the media. This is the kind of stuff that you see frequently when you're walking down the streets uh, in Central Asia, these kinds of anti-Chinese protests. This is the kind of stuff that initially led me to believe that Sinophobia was actually pretty pronounced in Central Asia. Um, let me uh, give you a little bit more contextualization here. Um, I understand that there's, there's three trend lines here. Uh, there's, there's a lot, a lot to digest. Uh, this is just uh, a, a condensation of um, Central Asian perceptions towards the, for lack of a better term, the great powers in uh, the United States, uh, Russia, and China. And this is an aggregation of four countries. This is Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. I'll break this down by country in the next slide. Uh, and the question that is being asked here is, do you approve, and I should underscore that, do you approve of the Chinese uh, leadership, the Russian leadership, or the U.S. leadership? Uh, uh, so again, these are only the approved responses. Uh, and if you take a look at 2017, the fact that 40% approve of China does not mean, does not mean that 60% 60, 60 disapprove. Um, there's lots of do not knows and refused. So let me bring those up. Uh, in all four countries, I think it's important to note that 
the disapproval level of China is lower than the approval level. So, so more, again, the modal response here is one of approve. More people in all four of the countries that are polled, and this is 2006 to 2018 aggregated, uh, approve of China than disapprove. I think what's also interesting about this data is that the do not know responses and the, ref and the refuse responses are in most cases significantly greater than the uh, um, do not approve response. There's a lot of people in Central Asia who just don't feel comfortable opining one way or the other about how they feel towards the Chinese leadership. Um, and I think part of the reason this may be the case is the complex economic picture of China in Central Asia. So uh, China is, as we've already heard from the previous uh, panel, China's the largest foreign direct investor in Central Asia. Uh, some other points worth emphasizing, uh, China is the largest export destination for two of the five Central Asian countries. So uh, it consumes 13% uh, of Kazakh exports, uh, and it consumes nearly all, 83% of Turkmen exports. This is largely hydrocarbons. So it's not just foreign direct investment, but it's also critical economic trade that's going on here. Uh, China is the leading source of imports for Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Uzbekistan. Um, this is a, a, a major change from when I first started studying uh, Central Asia a couple decades ago, uh, where Chinese goods were, were much less uh, widespread. But today, 40% um, of Tajik imports and 40% of Kyrgyz imports come from China. Uh, and about 25% of Uzbek imports are coming from China. So trade, it's not just foreign direct investment, it's, it's trade that's, that's, that's critically important. And then uh, you can see from these pictures here, China is heavily involved in infrastructure redevelopment, in, infrastructure development and redevelopment in, in Central Asia. Uh, the picture to the top left, uh, this is the uh, Shakristan Tunnel in Tajikistan. Uh, and I don't know if, I, I know um, some of you may have traveled through, uh, there used to be, uh, um, well, for a long time, there was the Iranian Tunnel in Tajikistan, which was a bit of a death trap if you travel through it. The, the Chinese Tunnel is, is, is very well built. Um, and this is, uh, this is uh, the Iranian Tunnel's gotten better as well, actually. Um, but this has uh, really reduced the travel time between Dushanbe and Hojand. Uh, so here's an example of China having a very positive influence on the daily lives of Central Asians. And we see these kinds of infrastructure developments all over Central Asia. So and if you're going from uh, Bishkek to Karakol, for example, uh, the road from Bishkek to Karakol used to be uh, a, a little harrowing. Uh, if you take it now, it's much better. And that's because of, of uh, the fact that the Chinese have rebuilt that road. Uh, it had, so the infrastructure has had very real and positive impacts on everyday Central Asian life, and I think a lot of Central Asians are happy about this. At the same time, there's been controversy. Uh, this is the Bishkek power plant uh, um, uh, in Kyrgyzstan. The Bishkek power plant uh, was retrofitted uh, in 2017-2018 by uh, TBEA, which is a very large Chinese co corporation, uh, also involved, by the way, in retrofitting the Tajik power plant in Dushanbe, uh, and it broke down in, uh, in January of 2018 in one of the, large, the, the, the most severe cold snaps that Kyrgyzstan has seen. So people weren't happy about that uh, for, for obvious reasons. Um, but there's also allegations of a lot of self-dealing that was going on with the, uh, 
contract with TVA for this, for this plant. Uh, so it was a $386 million contract, and now uh, there, are, um, there are six former Kyrgyz ministers, two of them prime ministers, who are under investigation for embezzling $111 million from this contract. So there's a sense among Central Asians that Chinese investment sometimes improves things, but also comes with potential downsides. Uh, and people perceive in Central Asia that there's some self-dealing going on here and that the Chinese aren't entirely in the dark about this, that they're aware of this. At least the, the company officials are aware of this. Uh, so there's a perception that you know, not all is well here. And so there's this mixed picture. And I think this mixed picture leads to some of these Chinese anti-Chinese narratives I'd just like to briefly touch upon. Um, so first, there's this narrative about uh, economic dependency. Uh, and Stephen, I don't know if he's still here. I know, I know he, he, made, he made the argument that um, uh, China doesn't want to be perceived as, 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 as uh, forcing these countries into dependent relationships. And I agree with you 100%. At the same time, I think from the, if you look from the ground level up, a lot of people perceive this. A lot of people in Central Asia perceive this. Uh, and I'll just give you one data point about this. Um, uh, Tajikistan wasn't able to repay the loan for uh, the retrofitting of the, of the, the power plant in, in Dushanbe. Uh, and uh, in order to uh, compensate China for this loan, they turned over control of, the, uh, of a gold mine to, 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 to China. Uh, this, I think, has negative impacts on China's soft power in the region. So although there may not be this intent of dependency or debt dependency, I think nevertheless there does arrive a narrative within the region, within the region that there is debt dependency. Uh, there's also this perception that these projects are uh, replete with corruption. So I already just described one incidence of this with the Tajik power plant and the embezzlement of money. There's many more uh, that, that one could cite. Um, Another one, uh, another anti-Chinese narrative that you see, and you saw that actually in the first picture that I put up there, uh, these, this ethno-national threat narrative, the idea that China poses a threat to Central Asian nationalities, either in the re-education camps that we see in Northwest China, but also, interestingly, there's this narrative, somewhat widespread, that Chinese men are stealing Central Asian women. Uh, so this idea that there's not enough brides in China, so they're going to Central Asia, uh, and, and they're looking for brides there. Now, there are, of course, behind all these narratives, some empirical support for it. I'll just give you a little bit of it that, that we may find uh, amusing, but I think the Kazakhs and the Kyrgyz take very seriously. So in Kazakhstan in 2017, a group of Chinese bachelors uh, enlisted the support of an ad agency in Astana uh, to put an ad up on Facebook to try to find these brides. And they were going to have kind of a bachelorette competition, right? Uh, you know, and, and women were going to um, uh, audition for, for the potential to be uh, a bride to a, wealth a wealthy Chinese man. Um, this led to lots of protests in Kazakhstan. Uh, we saw, uh, um, here's just one, another example from Kyrgyzstan. Uh, there's a, uh, a well-known pundit, um, Melissa Merthaliev, who claimed in a, a February 2018 lecture that 30,000 Chinese men had taken Kyrgyz brides. Now, this is obviously a figure that is exaggerated. There's, there's, I don't think there's any uh, anywhere close to that. Um, but this kind of stuff gets traction, and you see it again and again in the media, and that may be driving some of this anti-Chinese uh, sentiment that we see. Um, one, um, what is our... Okay. Okay. Um, uh, 
I'll, be, I'll wrap up quickly, I promise. Um, a, a couple other things here. Uh, the, I mean, the last one I'll talk about is, is uh, this idea that, that uh, Chinese, um, uh, the, the people who are being employed in Chinese factories and Chinese industry in Central Asia are disproportionately ethnically Chinese. And again, there, there's some empirical support for that. And this has led to, I think, some of the anti-Chinese narratives. Um, so there, you know, there, there, there is uh, grounds for these, but the question is how widespread, how widespread is this? Uh, well, I mean, if you look at trend lines, um, it is true that the proportion of Central Asians who disapprove of Beijing has increased over the past 12 years. So it's gone up from about 22% uh, to 24%. Um, Beijing's approval rating has also declined. It's gone from 44 to 39%. So there has been some erosion in Central Asian sentiment towards the Chinese leadership. At the same time, I think there's some good news, and this is where I'd like to wrap up. Um, if you look at Central Asian youth, and here I'm dividing, uh, defining Central Asian youth as those who are 30 or younger, um, they are much more upbeat on Beijing than older Central Asians. So if you look uh, at the aggregate data in 2018, 43% uh, of Central Asian youth under the age of 30 uh, are positive, approve of China, whereas only 37% over the age of 31. Um, so there, 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 there's, I think, ground for hope, and I'll, just, I'll wrap up here by uh, putting one potential causal mechanism for why I think uh, there is this greater attraction to China among the youth uh, than among older populations. And I think, uh, frankly, Chinese soft power efforts are working with this one part of, of the Central Asian population. Uh, the, uh, we, we know about the Confucius Institutes. One thing that we know a little bit less well about is the number of uh, scholarships that are being given to, China, uh, given to Central Asian students to study in China. Uh, these are pretty significant. I'll just give you one example. In 2018, there were almost 12,000 Kazakhs studying in China, many of them on scholarships. Uh, the, po the population of Kazakhstan is, is, is not all that high, what, 25 million, something like that. Um, What's that? Kazakhstan? Kazakhstan, yeah. 18. 18 million, okay. Um, uh, so this, this is a, a relatively large figure. Uh, Kazakhs were the, t the, the Kazakh students were the 10th largest group of foreign students studying in China, right? So I mean, put that in perspective, 18, a population of 18 million, and yet as far as all foreign students studying in, in, in China, Kazakhs are, are number 10. Um, this is pretty significant. I think China is making a major investment in soft power, particularly at the education level, uh, and this is having real effects among Central Asian youth. And I think looking forward, we could imagine a trend line. Jonathan was talking about trend lines. We could imagine a trend line where this continues and Chinese, the China image, China, uh, China's image in Central Asia continues to approve. So I'm questioning Sinophobia and, and just the opposite. I think there, there's a growing attraction to China in Central Asia that I think a lot of us have missed. Okay, great, thank you. <clears throat> Now we'll turn to Sebastian Peyrouz of George Washington University. Thank you, thank you very much, Henry. So I will be presenting on uh, uh, China's soft power in Central Asia. So in a way, my uh, presentation will follow up uh, with, uh, with Eric Swans. And I agree with, uh, with Eric. I mean, how China is viewed from Central Asia is a kind of uh, complex phenomenon with plenty of uh, 
diverse approaches and mixed uh, feelings. Uh, but, well, in any case, I mean, uh, debates uh, on Sinophobia uh, is in Central Asia, uh, debates on the Chinese presence in Central Asia is a point of concern for Beijing. Why? Because among uh, reasons, I mean, Sinophobia could threaten uh, Chinese investments and economic uh, and political ambitions in the region. So to mitigate uh, existing or potential tensions with local governments and populations actually in Central Asia and beyond, as you know well, and as Eric was uh, explaining, and Beijing has embarked on a, a policy of soft power. So in other words, uh, China has set for itself the goal of uh, winning the hearts and minds of uh, people uh, beyond its borders as uh, formulated by Joseph Nye. So to do so, uh, China has used very uh, diverse tools, and I don't have time to elaborate on that, but it has, uh, China has promoted uh, in Central Asia and beyond, of course, its culture, the development of uh, Mandarin, I mean, trying to teach uh, Chinese as much as possible. It has also, Beijing has promoted its model of political stability and sustainability, which would be uh, presented as something different and independent from uh, Western countries. And it has presented itself, China has presented itself as an economic model of development and as a country which is contributing uh, to uh, the development uh, of other countries. Uh, but, I mean, Again, I agree with Eric, but they are really what he's trying to see is increasing debates among Central Asia political, academic, and expert circles concerning Chinese present uh, and policies. And uh, uh, some real, real present uh, uh, Sinophobic narrative in local media in Central Asia, which suggests that, okay, I mean, Chinese soft power might work, but still, I mean, my, my opinion my feeling is that still uh, Beijing is kind of struggling to turn its charm offensive into a really effective use of soft power. And what I mean uh, here, what, what is important is that this so far, I think, still limited impact of Chinese soft power is not to say that China's soft power policy is doomed to fail in Central Asia or globally, but its success will probably depend on the capacity of Chinese authority to respond to some imponderables and uh, their ability to learn from, uh, on Beijing's ability to learn from uh, its experience and revise its strategy accordingly. So let me mention here uh, several points uh, in the few minutes uh, I have. Uh, first, on the uh, economic level. Uh, well, the effectiveness of China's uh, strategy to present itself as an economic model will rely actually on its ability to make its economic system sustainable and to successfully promote it as a success story. Which means that the continuation of the economic slowdown that China has been experiencing since uh, the second half of the 2000s could, in a way, uh, demonstrate the stark contrast between the Chinese official narratives of success story on the one hand 
and a much bleaker reality uh, on the ground, and which would uh, certainly damage the perception of uh, Beijing's model of development. And this is a point, actually, which is regularly addressed uh, in articles I read on uh, the, from, I mean, published in Central Asia on the Chinese presence uh, in, the, in the region. On the other hand, China uh, ostentatious display of uh, its economic power on the international stage since um, the 2000s has, I would say, increasingly uh, contrasted with the narrative it has used uh, since the 1990s. Uh, and China, China was portraying itself as a developing country supporting poor or less developed countries. And China and the Belt Road Initiative are more and more viewed as an economic power whose weight and influence is increasingly unbalanced and which would even serve essentially Chinese interests and which could deepen the gap between Chinese power and countries in transition. A second point. Uh, on the economic level, the, and Eric uh, mentioned that, I mean, so the repressive nature of the Chinese political system, which has uh, been even more uh, openly uh, wielded by Xi Jinping than by his predecessor, Hu Jintao, uh, I think might really hamper the effective effectiveness of China's soft power through, I mean, the apprehensive reactions uh, it generates in Central Asia and again beyond Central Asia. And uh, as Eric was mentioning, I mean, the, since 2017, uh, the disclosure of uh, re-education re camps in Xinjiang as well as a ban which, was, which has been imposed on, uh, by the Chinese administration preventing uh, several hundred ethnic Kazakhs and Kyrgyz from leaving the country, I think have uh, a real impact on how uh, China, on the image of China uh, in the region. A third point is on uh, the implementation of uh, soft power policy. What is interesting is that uh, China's soft power policy has been designed and implemented almost exclusively by uh, Chinese political authorities and state structures. But as uh, demonstrated by uh, Joseph Nye, an effective use of soft power is less about the ability of political authorities to charm foreign societies than that of civil society in a given country. Which means that uh, with this approach, uh, China has in a way, a confused governmental public diplomacy with soft power in which civil society generally has uh, an important role to play. Of course, I mean, for sure, I mean, public diplomacy uh, can uh, contribute to the promotion of soft power. That's true. But its impact uh, is likely to be uh, weakened if it is not augmented by private and independent actors. And as uh, candidly uh, recognized by a former Chinese Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs, Fu Ying, the Chinese government has used uh, very regularly the terms, uh, the terms of soft power, public diplomacy, and external publicity interchangeably. Uh, so, I mean, the impact of Chinese uh, government propaganda is likely to remain uh, 
limited so as long as it will not be supported by autonomous civil society actors, and here I mean by Chinese actors, but also by uh, Central Asian actors who would be really critical in uh, effective, effectively propagating an image of China that is not or not anymore associated with uh, politi political authorities. That said, uh, of course, I mean, China's difficulties in winning uh, hearts and minds uh, uh, of people abroad is not specific to Central Asia. And for example, David Chambos, uh, in his book, China's Goes Global, has a whole chapter on that and demonstrates very well the weak impact of China's soft power globally, including for, in, uh, the African or the South American continents, where Beijing really spared uh, no efforts in investing and promoting its uh, model of development. But in Central Asia, uh, I mean, local people willing and able to promote a positive image of China will be all the more important that China uh, geographical contiguity, demogra demographic weight, and military power strengthen local phobias, and especially in bordering countries, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. And Eric was mentioning, for example, this kind of cliche where in Kyrgyzstan people are afraid you know, seeing so many Kyrgyz women getting married to uh, Chinese men. But, and another point is that uh, while uh, the growth of Sinophobic sentiment has so far been kept under a control by the local governments, uh, by the local authoritarian governments, some regime or policy changes in the future could open up the question of China's uh, Chinese obvious presence. Uh, as, for example, uh, it, uh, it happened in Southeast Asia. We have a striking example for that is that in Indonesia, for example, Suharto authoritarianism had, for three decades, prevented uh, anti-Chinese um, expression. But after 1998, uh, as he, uh, Suharto loosened his grip on power. A violent demonstration quickly started against the Chinese minority living in the country and against China's policy in the, in the country. So to wrap up, uh, for uh, many, uh, I mean, Central Asian analysts and citizens, Beijing's soft power policy uh, in Central Asia remains, at least for now. Uh, viewed as, often viewed as, how to say, a kind of temporary tool, I mean, concealing a hard power policy designed to impose more political and economic influence for mostly uh, the benefit of China, and potentially sometimes, I mean, that's what we read, uh, undermining local development. But, and here, again, I will follow on what uh, Eric was uh, uh, saying. Despite this so far, uh, uh, limited impact of Chinese soft power in the region, this does not mean that uh, China is systematically unpopular. And I totally agree with Eric uh, on that, far from it. I mean, he, uh, Eric, for example, was talking about uh, Central Asian youth. And yes, of course, China is, can be very popular among young people. Why? Because uh, China brings uh, plenty of opportunities to launch a business. China uh, 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 brings plenty of opportunity to trade to, and to make a living. But here, I'd like maybe to add a small nuance, which I think is important. Considering uh, China 
as an opportunity to make money and have an easier life does not necessarily mean that the same, very same people admire China. Pl actually, plenty of young and less young people uh, thank China, but this does not necessarily mean that China is winning their hearts and minds. And Eric mentioned uh, very rightly uh, that China was getting more uh, popular thanks to uh, its uh, education assistance to, to, to the region. And this is definitely true. Uh, although here again, there might be some nuances. Uh, yes, China is thanked for, uh, is welcome for uh, its education assistance, but this does not mean that China is admired by, uh, by students. And a very quick example here, uh, I have interviewed, I mean, I travel regularly to to China, I mean, to universities where there are uh, Central Asian students. Uh, many interviews with Central Asian students there, and it's trying to see uh, how many of them are, of course, interested in uh, studying uh, there because they, they, they study in better conditions, they receive uh, a better education than they would, for example, I mean, uh, in Central Asia. But at the same time, they are not, uh, how to say, extremely interested in Chinese culture and uh, more generally uh, in, uh, in the country. And you have a Kazakh scholar, uh, Gaohar Nursha, who works a lot on China's soft power in Central Asia, and who's explaining exactly the same thing with uh, all people, I mean, a lot of people attending the Confucius Institute. You know, they go to the Confucius Institute to, uh, to learn Chinese, but um, many Many of them actually have a very limited interest in knowing more, for example, following lectures on Chinese culture or anything on China. So I will uh, stop by uh, saying that uh, one important point maybe for Beijing will be uh, to go beyond showing what is specific to, uh, to China and convincingly demonstrate what is or what can be a universal about uh, its system, and build more bridges with, uh, with local people who will be, who will be uh, ready and willing to uh, support and promote Chinese models and concepts, which have so far, I mean, raised, I mean, often raised apprehension uh, among uh, Central Asian population. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. So now we'll turn to Anar Valiev of ADA University in Baku. Well, thank you very much, Henry. I really appreciate it. Uh, from the Central Asia to the Caucasus, actually, South Caucasus, so my uh, short kind of the introduction would be to discuss more about uh, Central Asia, uh, more about Chinese interests in, in South Caucasus. What are the implication of that and how the countries of the South Caucasus react on that penetration of China to the interests of the South Caucasus countries. Well, starting from the right from the beginning, I can say that technically China didn't have any political or economic reasons in South Caucasus. There's none. There used to be none. Once the Soviet Union collapsed and initially years, first 20 years, I would say that China was kind of symbolically present in this region. 
And why was happening? Well, first of all, China was not politically interested in the region because the region was far away from China. Geographically, it was far away. Culturally, it was far away. And China didn't want to penetrate to the region because in contrast to other countries such as United States or European Union, Canada's Union, uh, China didn't have a too much political interest in the countries. For example, United States was interested in mostly kind of economic reasons or some kind of political democratization of the country versus EU was interested more in transportation links and further expanding its values. So Chinese political interests were not kind of the present in this region. Uh, from economic perspective, the region also didn't represent any kind of the, I would say, interest, because technically they compare with the Central Asia or any part of the world. South Caucasus is a very small area. So population of the whole South Caucasus will be considered, let's say, around 15 or 16 million population overall, with Azerbaijan around 10, 9, 10 million, uh, Georgia 3.5 million, and Armenia 2.5 million. So it's a five times less than average promise of China. So why would China would come and just uh, ex from export potential or from demographic perspective? So economically also the China, uh, South Caucasus was not so interesting. Uh, but a lot of things uh, changed uh, starting from the 2014, 2015, and there are several reasons affected, ch affected Chinese rise in the South Caucasus. Well, the first reason is disengagement of United States and EU from the, not EU much, but mostly United States from the uh, South Caucasus affairs, both politically and economically. Uh, second issue was the problems with uh, EU, internal problems, such thing as a Brexit and uh, all other migration crisis and the uh, kind of the disengagement of EU from a little bit more, at, uh, giving less attention to the South Caucasus. And all of this led to the situation when Russia became a little bit more active in the region. So the countries of the region saw Chinese interest as something could be counterbalancing the Chinese, uh, Russian interest in the South Caucasus. And a, ch a Chinese uh, kind of the policy in the South Caucasus could be best described, starting from the 1990s, as a as a famous Lincoln's terms, such as, I walk slowly, but I never walked backward. So they were always time consistently coming to the slowly engaging in the region, building up their uh, presence over here in the region. Uh, Speaking about the interest of the China right now, uh, I would say that the biggest chunk of the attention goes to Azerbaijan because Azerbaijan represents kind of one of the biggest countries in the region and uh, around 70% of the export-import operations with the region and investments happens falls on Azerbaijan. So why Azerbaijan is a little bit, I would say, have more interest uh, from China's side uh, for the last couple of years? There's a few reasons for that. First reason is, uh, kind of the economic, uh, slowly growing economic interest in, in the region. Abur initiatives uh, has one of the important aspects of the uh, linkage between East and West, and Azerbaijan and Georgia represent this one important link uh, between uh, China and European Union. Of course, if we look at Obor, kind of the map on the transportation links, or so-called Silk Road links, between China and, and, and Europe, Azerbaijani-Georgian route is not there. It's just considered as a kind of a supplemental route. But uh, recently, in, back in 2015, there was a kind of the trial uh, transportation uh, that was was taken that was taken from the China to uh, to Europe for around 4,000 kilometers from China, uh, and reached and it reached uh, Europe in a record six days. So for the six days, the 
wagon or just a train uh, that leaving the Chinese border from Kazakhstan and reaching to the European Union it took around uh, less than okay, six days or less than six days. It showed not only Chinese, but the signal to the world that that kind of the link uh, or transportation uh, could be one of the most safest and more one of the most stable uh, transportation routes for China and European Union. In addition, uh, China tries to just also supplement uh, or war that is happening, uh, that's passing through Iran in a case that if there's a certain type of the turmoil in Iran or some kind of the war or conflict starts, so what's going to happen with this Obor link uh, that happens through, that goes through Iran? So the, in, the, in this case, Azerbaijan-Georgian link can substitute Iranian link in the case of the turmoil over there. But beyond of that, uh, what is really interesting for the region, uh, that why the region is also interested in Chinese this initiative, why they couldn't just go beyond of that and just uh, cooperate more with European Union or United States. Well, there's a few reasons. 2014, 2015, and 16 were very critical years for the countries of the Scottish Caucasus. They devaluated their currencies, the economic crisis, and the, and the prices of oil went down, and especially for Azerbaijan, it was a really hard time. So the cash was drawn out. There was no enough funding for kind of supporting infrastructure projects. And at this moment, Azerbaijan, and partly Georgia, also needed uh, necessarily the investment into the certain type of their projects, such as constructing the roads, building the infrastructure necessary for the building transportation roads. But from perspective of economic, uh, I would say, vitality or kind of the feasibility, uh, Obor will never be able to give so much money that Azerbaijan would have get from the oil revenues. So for the last 10 or 12 years, Azerbaijan got a billions of dollars from the oil revenues. This oil revenue is going down. And as sooner or later, this oil revenues will, will completely diminish. So what is Azerbaijan hoping not to substitute this oil revenues from the transportation? Because transportation will maximum bring around $400 million per year for Azerbaijan in the best case. That's not enough to substitute what Azerbaijan is losing from the oil prices going down or the less uh, or decreased oil uh, oil. Uh, extraction in the country. But it hopes that Azerbaijan, and also Georgia, hopes that along the road, China will be able to build certain type of the hubs or certain type of the uh, enterprises that will produce products in the countries of the South Caucasus, whether it's Azerbaijan or Georgia, and through that period, uh, through that territory, they will start exporting Chinese certain type of the products that is produced in Azerbaijan or Georgia. For example, in recently, in 2019, Azerbaijani president uh, went to China and signed agreement for construction of, uh, there's around $300 million uh, will be invested in construction of the tire factory, or tire factory in Azerbaijan. So you can ask what, what, why in the world will just produce a tire factory in, in Azerbaijan, but the reason was, China is moving all its, trying to move also the productions uh, of the certain type of the products from China to the regions, whether it's a Central Asia or whether it's a Caucasus, in order to cut on the transportation costs. So production of the tire in Azerbaijan on Chinese investments, and then you have uh, only Georgia, Black Sea, and then it's already in Bulgaria, Romania, or in, or in uh, Istanbul. Uh, and those all export can just uh, go even faster.
So instead of just dragging the tire from somewhere from Shanghai or, some, or I don't know, from the main, uh, mainland of China, it's better to construct the, uh, the tire factory in Azerbaijan and, and, and ship it over there. So that was I, actually the basic idea behind the Chinese kind of coming to the region to bring this industry that is produced over there to the regions. And second one, again, earn uh, certain type of the profits from this. And again, uh, in addition to that, uh, Chinese also interested in partly, not much politically, but also military supply. For example, the Azer the, right now negotiating with Azerbaijan of supply certain type of the uh, weapons such as uh, tank type 99A2 or uh, fighter aircraft Jengdu J10 and sell them to Azerbaijan because Azerbaijan is also looking for alternative supplies of the weapons because so far they were buying most of the weapons from Russia. And meanwhile, Russia supplies the same type of the weapon a little bit superior to Armenia. So we're always buying the same weapon from the same supplier. And it doesn't give Azerbaijan competitive advantage in front of Armenia. So the, one of the choices is to move toward to the alternative, uh, uh, alternative uh, supply of things. And also, uh, for example, Azerbaijan bought recently from, not recently, a year ago, from Belarus, the uh, multiple launch rocket system called Polones that actually was produced with the help of the Chinese experts. Uh, that's about economic and political. And what, what's the future implication of that uh, issues. I mean, comparing any Chinese platform, such as Obor, with, let's say, Russian or EU integration projects, uh, it will be worse to mention that a Chinese platform does not uh, threaten either US or EU integration projects. In fact, it will supplement uh, what the European Union tries to do for many years. I mean, if you remember, for the, starting from the 1990s until the mid of 2000s, uh, there was a great project called Traseca that was uh, kind of it's kind of the platform of transportation platform that was helping Central Asia countries to export its potential uh, goods and Azerbaijan also and into Georgia uh, to Europe and from Europe to Central Asia. That was kind of the predecessor of Obor, but Traseca benefited mostly the oil exporting countries such as Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, partly Georgia, because there was nothing else to export from the region to Europe except oil. And a 70 or 80% of the export potential of these countries was following the oil versus uh, European uh, investment was mostly machinery and technology. So it will supplement this and revive maybe a Traseca project helping Europe to get closer to the uh, region. Uh, the next Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank kind of helping a lot to the region, especially Azerbaijan got a loan on $600 million for constructing TANAP, Trans-Anatolian Pipeline, uh, that will offer the gas or will uh, supply gas from the, uh, Azerbaijan to, to Turkey and further to Europe. But there's a little bit, I would say, uh, some kind of the concern of the countries, and especially Azerbaijan, that uh, whether the China would use uh, debt trap diplomacy that it used before in, in, in Africa or other countries, would it at some point, by giving too much credits or investment, would it by some point would love to get some lucrative industries, whether it's oil refineries or a certain type of thing. So this is only kind of the uh, concerns Azerbaijan has. But again, on we discussed about the anti-Chinese sentiments or something like that. There's no kind of visible, I would say, 
anti-Chinese sentiments on the type of investments or businesses or so far any kind of the Chinese political kind of the penetration to the region. And I would say that for the next, would say five or six years, there will be a kind of more Chinese influence, soft power and economic kind of investment to the region more than anything else, with continued, again, as I will repeat myself, with continued disengagement of the United States and continued problems with the European Union. Thank you very much. Okay, we're uh, very fortunate that uh, Maria Amelichova uh, of uh, National Defense University uh, has agreed to provide comments and uh, add some of her own insights to this discussion. So uh, we'll turn things over to you, please. Thank you, and I would like to begin by extending my thank you to all those of you who've decided to stick around for this second panel. I think it provides a very, very nice compliment to the earlier panel in that it picks on some of the themes um, that were raised in the earlier panel concerning China's uh, material influence and soft influence in Central Asia and in the Caucasus. I also think that there is another similarity in that um, the conclusions that these authors of the policy memos and research arrive at are applicable uh, far beyond Central Asia or Eurasia, and they speak to many contemporary deb policy debates as well. And Eric's uh, research and policy memo is a great example of the latter. In the West, the so-called great power competition framework have sort of blinded many analysts to the fact that um, people around the world do not share our fears of their country's dependency on China, the that trap um, discussed in the earlier panel, and that people don't perceive China's presence in their homeland, homeland as a threat. And I think it's a very big takeaway from Eric's research. On the other hand, um, Eric, just like many other researchers interested in um, um, public attitudes and public perceptions of the others rely on survey data. And the question that I've always had is whether it is possible to um, make broad inferences from rather narrowly form formulated survey questions. And to be more specific, um, sino or sinophobia is a rather broad phenomenon. It refers to sentiments against China or against Chinese people or against overseas Chinese, or against uh, Chinese culture, or all of the above. Uh, and it, it may, this um, anti-Chinese um, sentiment may arise in response to a great variety of factors, such as the presence of significant China, Chinese minority, or the history of majority-minority relations, or disparity in wealth, and so on and so forth. So as far as I understand, um, um, the policy memo and research uh, that Eric conducts is based on um, the survey that uses a question which reads like this. It asks the respondents to approve or disapprove the job performance of the leadership of China. And I wonder, wouldn't it be a kind of ecological fallacy to make inferences about all other Chinese things on the basis of this narrowly formulated question? To be more specific, do you think that the results would have been different had the question been formulated differently and used Chinese people or Chinese culture instead of Chinese leadership. And in this regard, I really like the approach that has been used by um, the team of survey uh, researchers at the World Value Survey. They kind of use an, a more indirect approach by asking respondents to approve or disapprove of a Chinese neighbor moving next door or approve or disapprove of uh, a daughter 
marrying, um, being married to a Chinese husband. So, um, so those are the kind of more indirect ways of tapping in the individual's attitudes, including attitudes towards a neighbor, um, in this case, China. And I really like um, your discussion of the age-based differences in Central Asians' attitudes towards China. I would really like to see sort of the, the quantification of those differences, if you could provide some um, you know, charts or tables that will show us that the age-based differential in sympathy or antipathy towards China based on uh, individual's age, that would be great. But more importantly, if you could link it back to your initial argument that Central Asians are Sino-agnostic, and with more interaction and greater involvement of the Central Asian youth, in particular in China-funded education opportunities and other projects, they are more likely to change agnosticism for approval and sympathy. That would be great as well. So moving on to uh, Sebastian uh, Virou's paper, which nicely complements the study and policy memo by Eric. So Sebastian picks up the theme of anti-Chinese sentiment in Central Asia and asks, why hasn't China been more successful in building a more favorable image in Central Asia? And the answer is that China has confused governmental public diplomacy with real soft power measures, which must include a real role for the civil society actors. And I think that these conclusions are very compelling. However, I would use the metaphor of this bottle. Is it half full or half empty? And I think this is the problem that we have with our interpretation of the available data in China, in Central Asia, or elsewhere. So we can interpret it as if China is not really um, accomplishing its uh, soft uh, power influence objectives or it has been rather successful. So I proffer an argument that an alternative interpretation of the data can be made that China is actually doing remarkably well given the challenges that it faces because China is not trying to uh, build this favorable image on an empty space. It is actually up against uh, deeply ingrained um, you know, cultural traditions, norms and institutions, either communist or liberal international order or whatnot. So it's not really doing it in the empty um, space. And this is not an easy fit to change other people's attitudes. I would say the United States has tried it over and over again, and it has not succeeded in many contexts despite um, all of the resources, human and monetary, that it has invested up to date. So um, again, this is not to undermine conclusions that uh, you make, but other argue for putting them in the proper context of the structure of ideas, constraints, and challenges that China is facing in trying to spread its influence. And the second point is, so I think in your paper you kind of make this implicit conjecture that for soft power, the power of attraction to work, there has to be a role for civil society actors. So civil society is a necessary condition for one country or people to like other country or people. And I'm not, not sure if I agree with that, and I'm not sure if I'm right. So I'm kind of offering this as a question for everyone to think. Can affinity between societies and states develop through other avenues? So having a shared enemy, can having a shared enemy be enough for you know, two countries or societies to like each other? So I'm just, again, do we need to have that uh, civil society to civil society interactions for uh, soft power 
you know, to work as successfully as I would argue it would, or can there be other avenues for um, um, developing affinity among societies and, and, and states? And moving on to the last uh, policy memo in research, it seems like it presents sort of like this uh, model, bilateral, Azerbaijan-China relationship where Azerbaijani public and a political establishment um, have um, hold China in a very positive light. Um, they don't think that China has a political agenda because of the geographical distance that separate these two countries. But I wonder if, so I, I will offer you uh, a counter argument. Um, Africa, African continent, you know, it's really far away and, you know, the amount of investments and the amount of involvement varies from country to country. So does the public sentiment towards China. So I wonder if in the foreseeable future we can see, you know, uh, some changes in the public sen sentiment as the relationship evolves, as China, be as presence becomes more prominent and visible in Azerbaijan. Wouldn't it suffice for the countries to be sorted? So would distance continue to sort of play the role of a buffer in a way? And then I also want to uh, kind of challenge you on your uh, conclusion that, uh, um, that, that, that China's efforts in Azerbaijan are complementary to the EU integration projects, and they, um, but um, they are challenging Russia-led um, Eurasian Economic Union project. Why it is so, um, you know, we heard that Chinese projects do not involve conditionality. So in the context of Azerbaijan and other post-Soviet uh, states, states, it means that they will prod the institutions and norms and practices that the EU has worked so hard to reform and replace. So in that light, wouldn't then Chinese projects be kind of at odds with the EU initiatives and efforts in Azerbaijan? So I'll stop here and open it to discussion. Okay, thank you for the great comments and questions. So maybe let's just uh, open it up, uh, maybe take one round of questions and then we'll come back to the uh, authors, speakers, um, and you can respond to Maria's uh, comments uh, as well. Yes, please, in the back. Dan Roper with the Association of the United States Army. I'd be interested in the reactions of the countries in the region that you just discussed to the Chinese release of the National Defense White Paper in July that sort of justified their expansion both militarily and how it was supporting initiatives such as the Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah, uh, yes, in the back. Okay. Um, I have two questions. The first is how the uh, I think the first presenters both describe how China is viewed in Central Asia. But from the Chinese perspective, the way I read Chinese public, public opinion polls is it seems to be two-way traffic. Central Asian countries' cultural, um, lots of those uh, soft power also increasingly uh, getting into China. For example, the most popular foreign singer in China, not the Russian uh, fabulous uh, Khodorkovsky who passed away, but is a Kazakh young man, uh, Dimati. And he's so popular in China, he won so many prizes, uh, taking over China like, like, like a hurricane. He's still the most popular. 
and, and the Central Asian sports, other things. So culture seem to be the soft power going two ways. I'd like to, both of you have to comment on that. This is my own observation. Secondly, I'd like to ask a question uh, for Professor Valiev. Um, from South Caucasus perspective, how do you see China's economic intrusion, or not intrusion, presence, in countries that the Russians may not like, like Georgia? You know, Chinese simply go to anywhere, whenever there's an opportunity. Chinese investment in Ukraine, for example, even more than investment in Russia. In the, in the aftermath of the 2008 war, the Georgia war, you know, Chinese continue to invest in, in, in Georgia. How do you perceive this kind of thing that, regardless of relations with Russia, Chinese actually get into the backyard of Russia? Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. So uh, let's have one more in this round, and then I'll come back to the people in this side of the room. Yes, so yes, kind of right. Get a microphone. Thank you all. Very illuminating. <clears throat> My name is Mindy Reiser. I've lived and worked in Central Asia. I'm a sociologist and involved in a number of projects. First, I recognize that the media in uh, Central Asia is not necessarily the most open, and there are constraints there, but that varies by country. And I'm wondering what kind of coverage there has been of the Chinese surveillance of its own population. I'm <clears throat> That's in addition to what's been happening to the Uyghurs. And of course, in Kazakhstan, you have a Uyghur population, and there certainly are concerns there. I'm also intrigued with uh, Eric's data. And as a social scientist, I'm interested in breaking it down in terms of the views of younger people toward China in Kazakhstan. How does that vary by education level, by media consumed, by use of internet, by occupation? Again, I go back to the indisputable fact that if you are a citizen of China, you are subject to a significant degree of surveillance. Now, people from the former Soviet Union are not ignorant of that way of being. And given that there have been changes uh, in the relationship to the Soviet Union, which doesn't exist anymore, and knowledge of opposition uh, impacts uh, on, on Russian life. I'm just wondering how this all plays out. Okay, thank you. So let's turn back to the authors now, and maybe if you could take like about you know, no more than three or four minutes uh, as best you can to respond, and that'll leave us time for, because there's several other questions waiting. So maybe we'll just go back in the order of the presentations and start with Eric. Sure. Because the first thing is, is I want to both acknowledge, uh, Marie, your, your, your comments about the um, limits the survey research, uh, and also that the fact that there's much more to China than the leadership. So, so yes, uh, but at the same time, I think as far as the things that many of us as political scientists are concerned about as, as intergovernmental relationships, um, I think it is substantially incredibly important how Central Asian governments perceive their populations viewing China, right, the, the leadership of China, uh, more so than 
culture. I mean, you know, Sebastian, you brought this up as well about the fact that Kazakh students in China aren't particularly attracted to Chinese culture. I mean, I think that's an interesting point, but at the daily level, and here I, I raise the case of Kyrgyzstan, where I think this is the country where you see this most operative, uh, it makes a difference to an opposition candidate in Kyrgyzstan if she or he thinks that they can play the Chinese government card. This idea that there's corruption between the the, the current government that they're opposing, uh, um, that there exists this corruption. Uh, if that card about the leadership can be played, uh, I think that is substantively more immediate than whether or not Chinese culture resonates. Um, which is not to say that there aren't better ways to measure uh, China um, than the way that the Gallup survey is doing. And you know, Marlene and I, we're working on this together. Um, in our own surveys, we're going to try to get much more fine-grained uh, analysis. But that said, I think at the end of the day, it is this question about the leadership that ultimately will shape Chinese, uh, Central Asian policy towards China, um, particularly in a place like Kyrgyzstan where there is room for political competition, where these kinds of issues can come up. And I actually think we're seeing this in Kazakhstan as well. Uh, I think uh, Takayev is, is responding in ways to this pressure. Uh, he, he feels the pressure. And it's not the pressure that is, is coming from cultural affinity. It's the pressure that people are exerting because they dislike what the Chinese government is doing. And in that sense, I, I think this question is, is critically important. Um, not to say that we don't want to look at the other ones, but, but I think this one is one we really do need to focus on. Okay, uh, Sebastian? Well, <clears throat> thank you, Maria. Yes, I mean, well, I agree, of course. Um, I mean, we can see uh, on public diplomacy, we can see half bottle, I mean, empty or, or full. Uh, and for sure, I mean, as I said, actually, as Eric uh, explained very well, I mean, uh, sinophobia and the development of sinophilia is a kind of very uh, complicated, uh, complicated phenomenon with uh, plenty of uh, intermixed uh, feeling. And the second point is that it's, on, uh, it's also a long phenomenon. I mean, on a historical scale, if we look at China's uh, soft power policy, I mean, it started only 10 years ago. Whereas if you compare with, for example, what the European Union or what uh, other countries like the United States have been working on that for so, so many years. So in a way, and I said that in my presentation, that I don't say that it's going to fail, but uh, what I feel, and uh, this is a feeling I have when I'm going to China and when I'm talking to, I wouldn't say to official people, but when I talk to people uh, working, uh, experts working in think tanks, uh, there is a growing concern about uh, what they view uh, a growing sinophobia, what, yeah, what they perceive as a growing uh, sinophobia, wherever it's true or not, and what the, whatever the extent of sinophobia uh, or, or not. And on civil society, yes, I mean you're right. I mean the li uh, civil society is not the only is not the only thing. I, absolutely, I agree on that. Uh, there would be uh, plenty of uh, other. Uh, Avenues, but I think that in China, uh, sorry, sorry, for, uh, in uh, in Central Asia, it's important when they see the Chinese presence. For many people, it's important to feel that there's not just behind it uh, the Chinese authorities. You know, for example, uh, India is very popular uh, in uh, in Central Asia because they are being really able to bring the civil society, for example, by education, by uh, bringing a lot of uh, assistance in healthcare, or even with cinema. You know, uh, cinema is very popular, and, and 
China has not been able to do that so far because, again, they see, I mean, many people see this soft power as a way to hide uh, the Chinese political authorities' hard power. But again, I agree with you, of course, yeah. Yes, uh, thank you very much, uh, Maria, for your comments. I will just uh, shortly answer them. Uh, perception, I mean, you've just brought a very nice example, of, for example, Africa. So what... Uh, Africa is also far distant from China, the same like Azerbaijan or Georgia or Armenia. And whether this perception would change? Yes, it may change. It may change with a certain period of time uh, when the Chinese interests are growing and the, the more and more Chinese may come to the countries and investment will continue. And we will see the presence of China in the countries much more than before. So far, we can say we don't have a Chinese anti-sentiments because maybe we haven't seen Chinese at all in our countries. That's maybe the reason versus Central Asia. So the, it can change. Yes, you're right on this issue. On a second question uh, on the, your comments or uh, kind of disagreement with me that China, Chinese initiatives or platform is complementing EU, and you brought a right argument that what about human rights or protection of human rights or uh, issues with them that concern Europeans, European Union more than China. I would say from this perspective, uh, we have a little bit dualistic understanding of EU and China. We're always thinking that, okay, EU is uh, for protection of human rights and China is against protection of human rights. So it cannot be like in the dualistic approach. China in a both way also interested in comparatively that the rules of the game in the country will, should be applicable to everyone. So, it, it, for example, if China uh, certain will demands certain type of democratization of the country, especially for the case of protection of investments, whether it's economic arbitrage or whether it's a courts or certain type of things. So to, to say that China is not interested in democratization or certain type of institution in the country it would be too over exaggeration. I would say China is also interested in the equal rights or equal, uh, I would say, uh, rules of the game for all uh, competitors of all the companies in the country. Uh, coming to the issues of the uh, Chinese investment in the region and how it will be perceived by Russia and whether the Russia would be uh, kind of against this kind of investment, I would say that uh, it depends on the country. For example, if you look at the country of, for example, Armenia, that where the debt trap diplomacy was used actually not by Chinese, but the Russians first, starting from 2000s, when they took over from Armenians all the, most of the enterprises for the debts. Uh, this policy didn't work from Russian side in Georgia and Azerbaijan because of Azerbaijan's economic resources and Georgia because of the political reasons. And when Chinese investments comes and start investing into this region, I don't think it will go against or Russians will be kind of speaking against this investment because of the two things. Local elites in Georgia and Armenia are strong enough to oppose Russians' interventions in not allowing Chinese to come. And a second most important, what we see in many other places, Russians are very careful in criticizing Chinese. They usually do not criticize or do not go against or opposing Chinese certain type of initiatives, whether it's in a certain type of the country or whether it's in a region or something like that. Russians are very cautious to go against Chinese. They can criticize the United States, they can easily criticize European Union, they go against the European Union or United States knowing the fact that they will not answer proportionally. But the same rules of the game they don't do with Chinese. In this case, what we see in our region, Russians are not going Chinese because of the, maybe it's a fear or maybe it's a understanding that Chinese would answer 
proportional or disproportionately to, to this kind of the Russian demarche on certain type of the issues. Thanks. So uh, let's see. So we have, I think, uh, two questions over here, then one here, and then one there. Um, sorry. Well, we'll ask the panelists to uh, get back to that afterwards. Yeah, thanks. Thank you very much. My name is Kate Waters. I'm with Crude Accountability. Um, I had a question uh, specifically about Kazakhstan and about investments in the oil and gas sector and perceptions around that. Um, I wanted to sort of ask you to address the issues of concerns around um, f and from the public about strengthening, potentially strengthening corrupt relationships between elites in both countries. So you have oil and gas investments between um, the, the government of Kazakhstan and, the, gov and the, the Kazakhstani National Oil Company, the same on the, on the Chinese side. A lot of times I think that looks like, and some of the speakers mentioned this, worker dissatisfaction, concern about wages or concern about um, employment opportunities. And that's part of it, but part of it is also um, environmental concerns, part of it is also social concerns in communities where um, oil and gas is being developed and in which there's very, very little information about what's actually happening. So I wondered if you could address that. And then I had a second, just brief question about Turkmenistan and um, Chinese investment in natural gas there, which seems to have had a, a a devastating impact on the economy there, and if you could ad address that and public perception around that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> Kathy Cosman, my questions also do have to do with public reaction. Um, to, in two cases, um, very specific government, uh, well, um, making nice to China, shall we say. I believe it's correct that Nazarbayev sold 51%, in other, in other words, controlling interest to China for the Kazakh National Oil Company, which I understand was uh, the fact that that led then to, maybe I'm wrong, but certainly the, the Chinese have a major share in the Kazakh National Oil Company, and as a result, Chinese managers were on the ground in, um, Jean uh, Ozen, and I was told, uh, maybe I'm wrong on this, that that the Chinese uh, managers on site were even more corrupt than the Kazakh managers, and this l was a major reason for the uh, labor unrest there in 2011. Um, also, China has bought and or rented thousands of acres of land in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan, Obviously, the pop local population are not, th are not thrilled by that. And finally, I also wanted to follow up on the, to me, shocking treat uh, treatment persecution of not just the Uyghurs in China, but all Muslims in China, including several Han groups, which are traditionally Muslim. And this, I guess, got off the ground just as the uh, Belt and Road Initiative was gaining strength, which to me, I just, that just boggles the mind how the Chinese were so arrogant or blind as to think that this would not cause popular unrest, uh, dissatisfaction in Central Asia. I'm uh, Peter Humphrey, an intelligence analyst 
and a former diplomat. Um, a good follow-on, if we look at the textbooks that are being used in those camps, um, we see that they are anti-Islamic. This is not anti-Uyghur or anti-Kyrgyz or anti-Kazakh. This is anti-Muslim. And about 12% of those prisoners are Kazakhs. In many cases, actual cousins of the Kazakhs in Kazakhstan. Um, and so there's some confusion in my mind. Kazakhstan holds all the cards here. They can stand up and say, you, uh, your Belt and Road is frozen until such time as our people are out of those camps. Or better yet, let them emigrate to Kazakhstan. Why doesn't Kazakhstan play that card and make their religious conservatives very happy and free a lot of people? Thanks. And in the front row here, please. Okay, thanks. Akab Malik again. Um, so my question last session wasn't answered, but this is not the same one. <laughs> Um, I'd like to talk about, because nobody mentioned this, uh, the strategic alignment uh, through organizations uh, and security architecture that's been evolving over the last decade or so, such as the SEO, uh, SICA, uh, and how that actually may necessitate the formation or management of perceptions at a higher level and filter down, such as what uh, uh, China is doing in its own, uh, in own country. Uh, the, the, the control of information, for example, and how would that affect perceptions? Because perception formation and culture, etc., always comes from the top and dictated from the bottom uh, to the bottom in that, in that respect through the media or the absence of it. Okay, great, thank you. So I think each uh, speaker would have about uh, three, four minutes, and maybe if you can come back to the questions that might not have gotten addressed in the last round um, to that. Um, so let's, uh, let's just start again with Erica. Sure. Uh, again, my apologies for not addressing some of the questions that came up before. I, um, uh, I'll just briefly touch on them. Uh, I mean, the point about media surveillance is a fascinating one. Uh, uh, Central Asians, like I think just about everyone, have misgivings about about this. Uh, and uh, actually, there's just a recent piece in the Eurasianet on this this morning um, uh, about uh, Central Asian governments adopting Chinese technology to increase the surveillance state. Uh, and, and my sense is that, that uh, Central Asians are certainly aware of this. Uh, um, they're certainly aware of this as a, uh, a tool that China has used in Northwest China. Um, uh, so uh, I think there, there's knowledge about this. I also think that there's a degree of resignation about it, just as there's a degree of resignation about it here in the United States, that this is the, this is, this is, this is the, this is the way the world is, um, and, and it's very difficult to fight. Uh, not that they're not fighting it, but um, uh, you know, I think this is something that, that is uh, pretty well understood. Um, as far, you know, I, the, your point about um, uh, uh, Kazakhstan um, and uh, holding all the cards, uh, I, would, I would actually uh, respectfully disagree uh, with your portrayal of Kazakhstan holding all the cards in this case, um, for a number of reasons. Uh, one, um, as I mentioned in my presentation, the largest single consumer of Kazakh exports is China. Uh, um, the other thing that I didn't mention in, in the presentation, uh, and Sebastian can speak to this as well, is uh, over the past, I think, 15 years, uh, we've seen a change in the composition of who's investing in the oil industry in Kazakhstan. And we see a, a movement of Western companies out of the industry and a movement of China into the industry. And I think there is some concern, uh, and rightfully so, that, um, that, that 
Kazakhstan really needs this investment uh, in order to continue developing uh, its its primary uh, export. Um, so I, I, I would I would disagree uh, in that sense that um, uh, that that. Kazakhstan can just say, until you release everyone, uh, we're, we're not going to do we're, we're not going to do business with you. And then the last thing on this point is, uh, what China is doing in north uh, in northwest China, frankly, is not all that different than some of the things that Kazakhstan does in its own um, its own prisons. Uh, so it would be it would be somewhat duplicitous, I think, of China of Kazakhstan to call China out on this score. Okay, Sebastian. Yeah, uh, maybe a. Uh, sorry, yeah, indeed, we also skipped the question on the on culture and soft power. I mean, culture, Chinese culture in Central Asia, but also Central Asian culture in uh, in China. I mean, can't say a lot, but uh, while uh, looking, I mean, reading on China and being, uh, traveling there, and even being uh, in universities where uh, Central Asian uh, are present. I mean. I don't think that so far really there's a big presence of Central Asian culture uh, in, uh, in China. Also, there have been uh, more and more initiatives, especially since the launch of the Belt Road Initiative. You know, the diplomatic circles have been uh, trying to develop. I mean, some uh, exhibitions on Central Asia, uh, publishing some books, so that, I mean, uh, Chinese people, I mean, uh, yeah, uh, knew a little bit more. But I think that this <laughs> a cultural presence of uh, Central Asian culture in China so far remains limited. But again, I mean, uh, uh, this takes time. Uh, on uh, questions, yes, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, Eric talked already about uh, several uh, mentioned several points, but I mean. Uh, the Chinese presence in uh, Kazakhstan oil and gas has been since the very beginning of the 1990s a big issue for plenty of, for plenty of reasons due to corruption, as you were mentioning, uh, due also now more and more to working conditions. I mean, uh, Chinese, whatever it's true or not, I mean, Chinese uh, companies are very often accused of not respecting local laws or even uh, Using Chinese laws uh, when they make uh, they make people work, uh, uh, this sector has also been a point of concern in terms of corruption because a lot of people consider that the Kazakhstan elite are signing contracts because uh, this will uh, this will, they will make a lot of money on that, and we know how. Sorry, no offense, but we know how Kazakhstani elites are corrupted. And another point, which is, I think I might be wrong, another point which will be very interesting to, to, to follow, to, to, to study, and which has been understudied so far is, as you were mentioning, the environment impact. And on that, we don't know, we don't know so much. By the way, if I may mention, I mean, to the next CSS, Central Eurasian Studies Society Conference, uh, Kate will be organizing a wonderful uh, panel on this uh, on this topic, so I strongly advise you to to uh, to, to come and attend this uh, this event. On Turkmenistan, uh, on the on China's presence uh, in uh, Turkmenistan, yes, yes, this is definitely a huge issue because, as you know, I mean. Uh, the Turkmen government never diversified the, uh, the economy. China is controlling most of, uh, of the gas, and not only it's controlling most of the gas, but actually Turkmenistan makes a really low amount of money because it has, uh, Turkmenistan has to refund, actually, all the investments of China to uh, exploit the gas sites uh, in, uh, in, uh, uh, in, in Turkmenistan. 
And uh, another question, yeah, again, as the economy is not diversified and as Turkmen, uh, China is controlling most of Turkmen gas, uh, what happens, for example, if uh, China's demand de decreases? I mean, we have no idea about that, but I mean, I read several articles mentioning this issue. And here, I mean, just something which comes to my mind, which is just a supposition. But we know, for example, that uh, China has the biggest reserves of shale gas in the world. So, for example, what happens if one day China really decides to exploit all its shale gas or most of it? In that case, it would significantly decrease uh, China's uh, demand for, for Turkmen gas. I'm not saying that is, that is going to happen, but there are, there are obviously a lot of risks considering the non-diversification of Turkmenistan economy. Anar? Okay, I'm Maria. Was there anything you'd like to add in conclusion? All right. Um, well, in that case, uh, let me first of all thank uh, Jeff and CSIS for making this all possible by bringing us all together. I'd also like to thank Carnegie Corporation of New York, uh, GW's Elliott School, and the Institute for European Russian Eurasian Studies that uh, provided uh, kind of core funding, bringing a lot of the people here. Um, I will say that like the, the presentations are based on draft memos that the authors have written. I mean, some have actually are already published. I think like Hillary's, for example, is already out. Um, the others will be kind of rolling out, uh, you know, over, over time. Uh, and then we also invite you to join us uh, tomorrow uh, over at the Elliott School's building on uh, E Street between 19th and 20th uh, for a full day of conferencing on uh, other topics related to the post-Soviet region. Um, and so, uh, yes, so I think with that, uh, please uh, join me in uh, thanking our panelists and uh, thanking our hosts. <laughs>